Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're once again joined this week by one of our favorite guests, Megan Gorman. Megan is the founding partner of Checkers Financial Management, a fee-only planning firm that specializes in high net worth and ultra-high net worth families in San Francisco. Checkers focuses on establishing long-term relationships with families and helps them navigate through tax, estate, liquidity, and investment planning. Megan heads the firm's family office services practice. She's a senior contributor for Forbes in personal finance and tax, and is also quoted regularly in the press as a tax and financial planning expert, including such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, CNBC, and of course, wealthmanagement.com. She regularly blogs at www.thewealthintersection.com and has appeared on numerous podcasts and is a regular weekly commentator on the Money Tree podcast. So check her out. It's great to have you back on, Megan. Oh my goodness, it's great to be here, David. And I'm I'm looking forward to this topic today. Yeah, this is a fun one. You know, the subject of today's episode is Mike Nesmith. Nesmith was an American musician, songwriter, actor, producer, and novelist, but was best known as a member of the pop rock, pop rock band The Monkees, and was of course a co-star of the hit TV series of the same name. He himself was interestingly also an heir, as his mother Betty invented the typewriter correction fluid known commercially as liquid paper. Over the next 25 years, she built the Liquid Paper Corporation into an international company, which she eventually sold to Gillette shortly before her death in 1979 for about $50 million, which is a lot of $1979. After the breakup of the Monkees, Nesmith continued his successful songwriting and performing career, first with the seminal country rock group, the First National Band, with whom he had a top 40 hit, Joanne, and then as a solo artist. But his, the rest of his career wouldn't be in the sort of recording area. It was more in a multimedia sphere. He founded Pacific Arts, a multimedia production and distribution company in 1974, through which he actually helped pioneer the music video format. He created one of the first American television programs dedicated to music videos called Pop Clips, which aired on Nickelodeon in the 1980s. He was then helped, asked to help produce and create a new channel called MTV, which was heavily inspired by Pop Clips, but his production company had prior commitments. In 1981, he won the first ever Grammy Award for Video of the Year for his hour-long television show, Elephant Parts. Things have changed a little bit in music video land since then. Nesmith sadly passed away in December of 2021 from heart failure at the age of 78. He was survived by three sons and a daughter from three marriages. He left the entirety of his estate, worth an estimated $3.5 million, to the Gihon Foundation, established by his mother in 1977. And I apologize for potentially mangling that name, but... I must have missed the day in law school when they went over correct pronunciation of biblical rivers. So please bear with me. (laughs) There's just one catch to this bequest. Nesmith made it in a handwritten will, 
Now, Megan, why is the fact that Mike Nesmith's will is handwritten such a key consideration? Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is one of those, you know, great aspects of estate planning, the, the holographic will and holographic wills are really sort of interesting in estate planning because it means that it is a will that has been written by the testator and it doesn't, it has certain comp- parts of it that comply with the law, but these wills can be tricky. Okay. So, you know, in a holographic will, we're looking for certain aspects to be there. Okay. In, and in California, the rules for holographic wills are you need to have testamentary capacity. It has to be in your own handwriting or filled in the blank. You need to have had testamentary intent. It needs to be signed and you need to be at least age 18. And California does not require witnesses or a notary. And so when we look at the will that Mike Nesmith left, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, he literally wrote, I hereby leave all of my possessions, all rights to the Gihon Foundation by my hand this day, Robert Michael Nesmith. And so when we look at this from a pure technical standpoint, we could make the argument that all of the elements for a holographic will in California are there. It sounds like he had testamentary capacity. He wrote it in his own handwriting. It sounds like he had the intent to dispose of his assets. He signed it. And he, since this was written in 2014, actually it was written on July 8th, 2014, he was clearly over the age of 18. So just on the face of it, David, you know, this seems like a real will that can be used. But I have to tell you, it sort of opens Pandora's box, as you probably can guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to point out here, too, that the, we're speaking specifically about California here because that's where this particular will is being probated. The California rules on holographic wills are, at least in my experience, more liberal in terms of what they allow than in most other states. I know in, in New York, you still do need, you know, holographic wills are basically not allowed, except in very very specific circumstances. It's like merchant seamen, or if you're shipping out to war, um, or, and there's a couple others, but they're all like hyper-specific. They, they um, really, um, and it's interesting because to your point, some states really allow them and some states don't. But I really think it's important for listeners to understand that holographic wills have a really, really, really long history. So this is not something that like we made up here in California. Um, it's one of those things where holographic, it sounds so high tech, right? But really, it's, it something, does, it does. But then it's, it's something we use to refer to like the oldest possible way of writing a will. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, we have documentation showing that holographic wills were used in Rome and other Mediterranean kingdoms as far back as the seventh century. And, you know, it's, it's really, we've also seen them over the course of just the common law in using holographic wills. So, so Mike Nesmith wasn't doing something that was completely, um, you know, new to the game. But I think one of the things, David, I I thought about as soon as I saw this case was, oh my, how complex. And yet he thought something as simple as a holographic will would mitigate the complexity. And so- Go ahead, Megan, I'm sorry. And so, so I think one of the things we have to understand here is, look, he was- doing the right thing by trying to establish his testamentary intent to give his assets at his death. 
But when we look at a case like this, we often have to look at it and say, what could we have done better? And what could go incredibly wrong here? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important to stress here that, you know, we're talking about holographic wills, whether they're valid or whether they're not, they are decisively better than nothing. Even if they're found to be invalid, they at least give some guidance as to what someone's testamentary intent is. And so, and that's often, you know, when there are will contests and things like that, part of the most difficult part of figuring those out is because you're trying to figure out the intention of someone who's not there to tell you it and will never be. Right. Um, so you're sort of trying to read the mind, you know, you're performing a seance, you know, to try to figure out what this person's doing. So even if you have something like this, a document like this, that isn't legally binding, it can still be very helpful to just guide your heirs as to what you actually wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, there's always this debate of, was this a casual scribbling or was this intended to be an estate plan? And I think here in this case, he was very clear that he intended this to be an estate plan. So let, let me just sort of, you know, big picture, if you said to legal scholars, what's the big deal? Why is doing a holographic will so challenging? And the reason they're challenging is they often have omissions and errors in it. So it, it sounds crazy, but there are legal studies on holographic wills. And there was a study back in 2007 in Alameda County, California, um, here in the Bay Area. And when they looked at 32 holographic wills, they found that 25% of them resulted in a litigated dispute. And what they found is that the majority of these wills lacked things like an executor clause or a residuary clause. So some of the key components of a will were just missing. And so that's what tends to lead to litigation. I can just now, jump in here for the benefit of our non-lawyer audience. I think an executor clause is fairly self-explanatory, but do you mind just going into quickly what a residuary clause is? Sure. I mean, a residuary clause, give me one second. Mm -hmm. Just want to give you a good definition. So the residuary clause in an estate plan is really what allows the passage of the estate to the beneficiaries identified in the will. It, it's, it sort of lays it out. Um, you know, can I redo that? I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. So a residual cause basically says who gets the assets not specifically gifted inside a will or a trust. It's sort of a catch-all provision. So for example, if I said, you know, I'm Megan Gorman of, you know, right state of mind, bequeath to David Lennick, $100,000 signed by me on this date, and I sign it, and that's my holographic will. Well, if I was worth $250,000, where does the other 150 go? Because clearly 100,000 goes to you, David, but the rest of the estate, it's not as clear where it goes. And that might seem like not that big a deal, but we always joke about an estate planning that sort of knock, knock, knock on the door saying, guess what? You've inherited this because you are the fifth cousin, 12th removed from this person who passed away without any, um, any estate plan or without a residuary clause. But you could see in this instance how it could cause lawsuits and disputes and a lot of challenges. Now, I want to take this back to the Mike Nesmith case because his situation is sort of interesting. You know, the, the asset base he had 
I mean, the first question I had when I heard it was, well, where did all the money go? Yeah, that's right? my first thought as well. <laughs> so, you know, clearly um, he had a good time um, or the money was gifted away to his children. There are things that we are not clear here because from what his mother sold liquid paper for in the 70s to what he is handling here um, at his death in 2021 went from, you know, 50 million to something like, $3.6 million. So some of the questions that just initially comes up as where are all of the assets? But the other big issue we're facing here is that because this is a holographic will, it's going to really cause complexity in managing the estate. And that is because without following some of the rules in California, Mike Nesmith is forcing his will to go to probate. And so rather than things just move smoothly, the disposition of assets to occur, what has to happen and has happened in this case is his will has to be filed with the probate court in California. And if you're a Californian, you're going to know out of the gate, this is a huge no-no. So California is a huge state. Um, you know, there's 45 million of us here. You know, we're, we're really our own country into ourselves. And so when you have such a populated state, the courts do not want to be getting involved in probate. They do not want to deal with the disposition of assets. So here in California, we use something called a revocable trust. And by having a revocable trust, what we do is we fund them with assets that are in our names. So my house is in my revocable trust. My brokerage account is in my revocable trust, but not my IRA or 401k, but my titled assets. And when somebody passes away, it doesn't have to be probated through court. In fact, it's a very, very straightforward disposition of assets, and it gives you privacy, you avoid court, and you avoid the cost of probate. And that is a very, very big deal here in California, because in California, if your estate exceeds um, around $150,000, you are going to be subject to fees if you have to probate your estate plan. And those fees range from one to 4%. And so what Mike Nesmith has done here is even though, and we're going to get to it, he gives everything to charity. He now has to have his estate plan probated. We need to have an executor picked. We need to have attorneys. Um, bond will probably have to be posted for this estate plan. And in California, if you get stuck in the probate system and in the probate process, it is typically a nine to 24 month process if your estate plan is straightforward. So here, his intent is he wanted to give it to charity, right? And now this 3.6 million, which should have just went directly to charity, very clean and easy if it was in a revocable trust, is now in the probate system here in the great state of California. So the one group of people making the money off of it is going to be attorneys, executors, the court system. And that really is not what we want to have happen in general. I mean, it's really interesting how, I mean, if you look at his bequest, it's effectively the simplest bequest you could possibly make, right? I give everything to somebody. And yet, because he did it in the form of a holographic will, he has made it wildly more complicated than that. Correct. And that is, you know, 
is one of those things where it's just unfortunate. Okay. And I think, you know, look, I think one of the things for those of us who have clients, you know, you have some clients that sort of get how you have to do it and they're willing to follow the process and the system. Right. And then you have clients that are, that are quirky, right? I mean, you find out that they like to carve their own path. I mean, I think another good example recently was Tony Shi of the Zappos Wealth. Um, you know, he didn't yeah, have an quirky, quirky is a word. Quirky is a word, quirky right? A Everything's word. on post-it notes, right? <laughs> so we saw that there. We saw some holographic will issues with Larry King. You know, so a lot of these people who the skills that made them interesting as people, the skills that made them successful as people often don't make them good estate planning candidates because they don't want to do what you're supposed to do. They want to follow their own path. And what's really sad here with Mike Nesmith is he did this back in 2014. So he had a good seven and a half years from the date he wrote this to the date he died to have done the right thing. And that's sort of frustrating. And so one of the issues that this whole situation brings up is, can this will be contested? And David, one of the things you brought up out of the gate was that he has four children from a few different marriages, right? And so that's one of those things that, look, we don't know what the family dynamics were. They might've all gotten along. They might've all been, you know, hosting big family dinners and everybody loved each other and the money's not that big a deal. Or we could have had a, have a situation where we've got the four children who are all at odds with each other. And therefore when dad writes the holographic will, it's like dropping a bomb, right? And now the question is, can the will be challenged? And in California, there is the ability to challenge a will. But the legal basis to do this is as follows. One, there, must, there can be a question about testamentary capacity. Two, there is a suspicion of undue influence in preparing or executing the will. Three, it was not signed properly. Or four, the testator was fraudulently induced into creating the will or including certain provisions. And so this is going to be the big question that happens because now that the will has been put into the California probate system, we have to figure out, his children are going to have to figure out if they're going to be willing to make a challenge to the will. And we don't know. We don't know if any of these issues are out there. They remain to be seen. But I will tell you, if the will is challenged and has to spend more time in the California probate system, this $3.6 million that was going to go to his charity is going to now get frittered away by even more expenses. And that's a problem because I think that even if Mike Nesmith wanted this to be his will, he's now having his intent questioned and what he really wanted to have happen, he's losing to costs and expenses. Yeah, and I think it's important to stress here that, that a lot of cases with holographic well, the most dangerous situation. I mean, you know, Megan laid out the sort of the two poles, right? Sort of everyone gets along and everyone gets along after. And then there's the nobody gets along, so nobody gets along after. But I think a lot of times the most dangerous thing with these holographic, the most dangerous scenario for these holographic wills is everyone gets along before and then they fight after and nobody could have possibly known it was coming. And that's where you end up with this sort of casually written will because, hey, we all get along without the foresight of knowing that, listen, trauma and money and these things change people. 
And, you know, they could be fighting over money if it happens. If there's a fight, maybe nothing happens. But there's also maybe they don't like the same charity. You know, Mike Nesmith was a big time Christian scientist, hence the name of his foundation. Um, maybe his children don't share those views or they have different philanthropic views. Maybe they want to give the money to Ukraine. You know, there's a million different things. There's a million different ways that they could be not greedy and still challenge this will to put the money to a different use. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, I think one of the things that we want clients to be thinking about when they do their estate plan is you want, you do your estate plan in a way to make sure that after you're gone, you've really truly taken care of the people that you care about. And I think Mike Nesmith would sit here today if he was alive and say, I thought I did that. But I think by creating these areas where there is potential that the will is not valid, that there's potential that somebody would say was, you know, you know, uh, potential for someone to contest it, the issues with probate, I think he did not put his family in the best possible position. And, and I find that disappointing, you know, and so I think when we work with clients, we really want to push them to get these decisions made and get them done in the right manner. And I really feel strongly that what you have to do is almost sit there with your client when you're going through the estate planning and say, okay, but what if this happens? The way you you want this done here, you know, are you sure that if you give everything to charity, your kids won't be upset? Now, the one thing I'm going to say here is what we don't know in all of this is he could have had other things that worked like irrevocable trust to his kids. He could have been gifting to his children over his lifetime. There's things here that we don't know, but I'm probably, as if I'm a betting person, I'm going to guess that this holographic will is all he left. And David, the one thing I want to also point out here is Mike Nesmith, you know, if his will had been, is allowed to stand and everything passes to charity, you know, he passed away and didn't have to deal with anything like estate taxes because he had a charitable bequest. And what I am finding more and more with clients these days, particularly you know wealthy clients, is a lot of them want to benefit their families, but a lot, a lot of them are also looking to charities to be in their estate plans. And I think it's really important when you're doing your estate plan to think that through. Because it might make sense that, yes, 90% of your estate goes to your children and grandchildren, but you've carved out 10% to go to charity. And what I'm also finding a lot of people doing now is rather than naming specific charities inside their estate plan, a lot like what Mike Nesmith did here, people will name, most people now don't do foundations, but they'll name their donor advised fund. And what I really love about that is if you name your donor advised fund in your estate plan, if you change what charities you support, you don't have to change it in your estate plan because your donor advised fund will have a beneficiary designation form to it that at your death, you can have the fund disperse to certain chosen charities. So, you know, I think Mike was trying to do some good here to his own foundation, um, but I'm not sure he, he's going to actually achieve it. Yeah, I think another very important consideration with charity is that, um, you know, a lot of plans will fall down, not really amongst the planners, but amongst the, the sort of people making the bequests and that, oh, I'm giving it to charity. That's, you know, only good can come of this, right? And then they'll not sort of follow it up beyond that. But when you're making a gift to charity, you know, doing your due diligence, even if it's a well-known charity that you trust is super important for, you know, for a number of reasons. First, you just want to 
ensure the process that the money gets to the charity and then the charity actually gives it to who they're supposed to give it to, which is sadly a thing we have to worry about. But also make sure the charity wants what you're giving them, right? In this case, there's a private foundation. He's giving cash. It's cut and dry. But in other foundation where you're giving to a private, a public charity and you say, I want them to have all of my stuff. And it's like, oh, well, we don't want your chairs. We don't want, you know, your, your items in your house. That's a hassle for us. We don't want this gift, you know? And then it's the same thing with giving, you know, maybe you have an art collection you want to give to a museum. You got to do some due diligence to find the right museum, but also make sure the museum wants this stuff. The charity doesn't, you know, unless it's cash, you know, there's any gifts of other kinds of things need to sort of be run by them to make sure that they're going to take it. Exactly. Exactly. It's a really good point. And, you know, I, I think there's a balance when you're giving to charity. I never like to tell charities what a client is going to give at their death because things change, but it's good to understand from the charity what they look for when they inherit from an estate. Yeah. And I mean, charities have also, it's important to point out, they have officers in place. This is not like an insane thing to ask them. They're not going to be like, what do you mean you want to know this about us? Like they have people there who this is their job to explain this stuff to potential donors. Exactly. Exactly. Now I want to just, before we you know wrap everything up, I do want to go back to this concept of holographic wills. Because I, I want to just say one of the things that we should expect here is courts want test the testator's intent to be honored. It's a pretty big deal um, to, to undo a holographic will. So if we don't see any of the kids contesting the will, it will not surprise me if this will stands, because again, it, it sort of illustrates the testator's intent. And I want to just tell you a really quick little story that happened in LA um, back in the 1950s, which sort of goes to how far a court will go to make sure a holographic will is uh, legitimate. And there was a woman at the time, her name was Beth Bear, and she was blind. And she wrote her will with a pen that had run out of ink. Mm. And the blank paper was submitted for probate in the LA Superior Court. And basically they had a handwriting expert make out the words of the will from the indentations left on the paper by the empty pen. And so I think that that's a good case to show that courts really want to honor the testator's intent. And you should never forget that when you hear of these cases like Mike Nesmith, they want to make sure that if this is what he really wanted, they're going to try to make it happen unless one of these other things pops up like undue influence, right? Or he wasn't of sound mind. And so this will be interesting to see how it plays out if anyone actually contests it. Yeah. And I mean, if we're bringing up examples of sort of crazy holographic wills, I think <laughs> it was you and I that were, that were talking about this one that you told me about. But, oh, the um, tractor? Yes. <laughs> do, you mind, do you mind sharing that Oh my God. I love, absolute favorite. I love the tractor story. So um, this is, a st- I teach it in law school. It is the Cecil George Harris case. And anyone who takes estate, plan- estate planning in uh, law school reads it. And it's a case from 1948. There was this farmer, Cecil George Harris, and he's working on his land and he gets trapped under his tractor. And he knew the situation was dire, right? He, and he wanted to make sure his wife was um, taken care of in case he died. So here he is trapped under the tractor and he takes out his pocket knife and he scratches a will onto the fender. And it says, in case I die in this mess, 
I leave all to the wife, Cecil Geo Harris. Okay. So he's trapped there for 10 hours. Finally, somebody finds him. They get him to the local hospital and he dies. But he doesn't, before he dies, tell anyone about the will. But eventually his neighbors go out to get the tractor and they find it. And they literally take the fender off the tractor and they bring it to court. And the court determines that Harris created a valid holographic will and his wife receives the estate. So if you're really bored, Google Cecil George Harris fender, and you can see the actual fender of that holographic will, but it's a great case that sort of illustrates it. Although, you know, poor Mr. Harris, um, for, for being trapped there for 10 hours, um, I, I don't know what was worth being trapped into the tractor and her having to scratch this into the fender. I don't know how long that would have taken, but it is a great story, David. I'm glad you remember it. Yeah, I, I love this story. In my head, it's always I can't I can't get this crazy image in my head. If anyone's ever been into the records room of a probate court, they have every like they have all of your files and sort of large files or big red wells or in books, and just the picture of them trying to file this fender is and it probably didn't happen but in my head it definitely happened <laughs> like a, the poor file clerk was like here stick this in the the harris farm <laughs> exactly this <laughs> a track defender is just amazing to me yeah i, I actually think it's on display somewhere i forget what like it's like i when i saw a picture of it, it looked like it was in a case somewhere but you know it's it's funny because i think that holographic wills when you are studying estate planning not living it and practicing it but studying it holographic wills always have fascinating storylines and I find they make the best law school um, exam questions. Because it's such a good issue spotter, right? It's a good issue spotting thing. So it, it's an interesting thing. And and so, you know, look, I, I wish Mike Nesmith had done a little differently, but um, he did give us a good topic to talk about. And, and, and I wanted to ask you, David, because you and I are both Gen Xers and we got to know the monkeys in the 80s when it came into syndication. Yeah, Who I was your favorite from, monkey? I know them from Nick at Night. So yeah. I, uh, I never actually wasn't, you know, didn't catch the, obviously the first version of it. I didn't know Mike Nesmith, actually. All I knew was Davy Jones. Oh, so, see, I was a Davy Jones fan. <laughs> um, and I think right now there's only one monkey left, uh, Mickey Dolan's. There's only Mickey Dolan's left. Yeah. So interesting situation. Well, on that somewhat downer of a note, I'd like to thank Megan Gorman for being a great guest and for, as always, talking us through a very complex topic in a very straightforward and understandable way. Thanks so much, Megan. Thanks for having me on, David. Talk to you soon. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.